the Bible as art, how to enjoy it, how to play with it. I didn't appreciate the greatness of great art until I went to university. I was a bit of a late developer, I think. I went up to study classics, and I was told to read the whole of Homer in the original Greek. So I did. I came towards the end of the Iliad, and the scene where Priam, king of Troy, begs Achilles for the body of his son Hector. And I was blown away. For the first time in my life, I knew I was in the presence of a very great poet. And then in the archaeological museum in Athens, I found myself going from the most beautiful thing I had ever seen to the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen until I reached a two-thirds life-size bronze statue of a young man created in the 4th century BC and discovered in the sea off Mar of Marathon. I stood in awe before that statue, then sat at its feet for minutes on end while other visitors moved around me. But I didn't appreciate the Bible as art. The Bible wasn't art. The Bible was holy. I got appendicitis in my early 20s and spent 10 days in hospital. 10 days. Caroline, my fiancée then, had sent me in with several volumes of Jane Austen. I'd never read her before. But what delight, what wit, what lightness of touch, what exquisite turn of phrase. But I didn't take that kind of delight in the Bible. The Bible was much too serious. I discovered John Donne and Wilfred Owen and Gerard Manley Hopkins and Rembrandt and Stanley Spencer and late Beethoven and Benjamin Britten and St. Johann, Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, all that. But the Bible wasn't like that. The Bible was different. In 2017, I was asked to contribute to a slim volume of essays called, and don't laugh, The Joy of Being Anglican. <clears throat> the joy of scripture for an Anglican was the title I was given. And this is how I began. The joy of scripture? Really? For an Anglican? Are you quite sure? I've always been an Anglican, so I should know. I was brought up to revere the Bible, to believe it and obey it, but no one ever spoke of me enjoying it. And that, I suppose, could have been it, which would have made the essay a bit, bit short and disappointing. But I went on, at, at, oh, but I do. In the early 1980s, I joined the staff of a theological college in Salisbury to teach Old Testament studies, and it was there I gained profound joy from grappling with biblical texts and from entering into them more deeply than I'd ever done before. At the time, I explained, academic literary studies of the Bible were in full swing. And I learned a simple but far-reaching lesson. In exploring biblical texts, I was dealing with great art, with creative storytelling and poetry of the highest order. Many of you will know why Psalm 119 has 176 verses. Put your hand up if you do. 
Yeah. It's an acrostic poem written in 22 stanzas of eight lines each. Not only does it work its way through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order, but each of the first eight lines begins with a word whose first letter is Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet. Each line of verses 9 to 16 starts with a word whose first letter is Beit, the second letter, and so on. 22 letters, eight lines each, 22 times 8 each equals 176. Seven other psalms are acrostics, and the final poem of the book of Proverbs, a woman's poem, is an acrostic. Though Psalm 119 is the most elaborate, I would argue the most remarkable examples are found in the first four chapters of Lamentations. Lamentations 3 is made up of 66 verses in 22 groups of three lines. Each of lines 1 to 3 begins with a word whose first letter is Aleph, lines 4 to 6 with a word starting with Beit and so on. Yet these laments, the laments of Lamentations 1 to 4, are searing poems on the devastations of war and invasion and their impact upon the women and children and the old men those left behind when the Babylonians carted so many off to exile in Babylon. <clears throat> How in God's name did the poets find the energy to fit their outpourings of grief and pain into the strict form of the acrostic? And they did it without the poetry becoming strained at all, without the form limiting their freedom of expression. I was discussing this with a friend only the other day, and she suggested that perhaps the discipline of the acrostic acted as therapy for them. I hope it did. One thing is certain. They were poets of very considerable technical skill, as well as poets of great profundity. And though the first can only be seen in the Hebrew, and remains invisible in translation. The second, their profundity, means their words can speak today with disarming clarity and honesty of the experiences of countless people in Syria, the Yemen, Myanmar, Venezuela, and the rest. It matters not whether those people are Christians or Jews, and of course very many in those countries are not, Lamentations can still speak out their agony, give words to their pain in the way that only very great art can. The church and the synagogue do not own the Bible. As art, it belongs to all humanity. Just for your interest, as many I expect of you will know, the poets of Lamentations were almost certainly women. The signs are there. Though, of course, men came along later to tell us that women could not possibly have written such fine things. It must have been Jeremiah. Cobblers. <laughs> Let us return to Psalm 119 for one more brief moment. 
Its theme is the Torah, and the poet uses all his skill in sustaining a variety of words and phrases to describe its beauty and its wisdom, never quite repeating himself through his 176 verses, in, and I think it was a male poet in this case. But all but a handful of psalms enter the darkness of suffering, and Psalm 119 is not one of the exceptions. And so in verses 82 to 83, we come to this. My eyes fail with watching for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. What language that is. A wineskin, unused, shriveled up, black, dead. For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Just four words in the Hebrew. And see, they contain a world of loneliness and despair. Like a wineskin in the smoke. Compare that with the language of our own hymns and songs and public prayer, generally so safe by comparison, so bland by comparison, so much less imaginative and daring. 2,500 years after its composition, that psalm has not lost anything of its power. That is great art for you. The poets and storytellers of the Hebrew Scriptures are just as daring in their speaking of God. Just one example will have to suffice. In Genesis 32, we hear of a man called Jacob wrestling with a mysterious stranger through the dark hours of the night as he crosses the wild gorge of the river Jabbok. At one point, this stranger cries, Let me go, for dawn is breaking. To which Jacob replies, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then, when the blessing is finally given and the encounter is over, Jacob names the place Peniel, which means in the Hebrew, the face of God. And he says, I have seen God face to face. So the stranger in the story was none other than God himself, so we learn at the end. Jacob has not been wrestling with a river demon, nor, as is often said, with an angel. Jacob has been wrestling with God. As we read the 11 verses of the story, that's all, it begins to feel like a dream. Jacob's hip is put out of joint during the encounter, and we would expect him to collapse in agony. But he carries on as if nothing has happened. And it is after that point that God begs to be released from his grip. Yet at the very end, Jacob climbs out of the gorge with a limp. What mystery is this? What kind of storytelling is this that God is caught in a human stranglehold 
and we hear him begging for mercy. There is another place in our Bibles where a somewhat similar tale is told. And those of us observing Lent are preparing to go there on Good Friday. We call the place Golgotha. The story of the crucifixion of Jesus is much worse than that of Jacob at the Jabbok, of course. It is truly horrific and, as Paul acknowledged, hugely problematic. For now, the one who shows us God, with a big O, big S, big G, is not just held in a wrestling hold for a spell. He's nailed to a cross by a Roman governor as a piece of Jewish trash. He is tortured and killed, put to a most cruel and degrading form of execution reserved for slaves and insurrectionists. So how does Mark, the first of the evangelists to undertake the task, begin to tell this tale? by being remarkably brief, by avoiding sensationalism, by focusing not on the physical pain but on the shame of it all, the utter desolation and crushing loneliness, and by taking us back to the Psalms, by taking us into the thick darkness of Psalm 88, the blackest of all the psalms, with darkness as its final word, no light at the end of the tunnel there, to various verses in the stunning Psalm 22, they divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. All who see me mock at me, they make mouths at me, they shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord, let him deliver, let him rescue the one in whom he delights. But I am a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. To Psalm 69, 21, for my, for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And when it comes to the women disciples on the scene, to Psalm 38, verse 11, my friends and companions stand aloof from my affliction and my neighbors stand afar off. And most famously of all, of course, to the opening words of Psalm 22, quoted in a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic to make quite sure we hear the voice of Jesus here, even if he is slowly suffocating and struggling for every word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Mark's story is no mere pastiche. He has woven together all these elements and more to create a stunning passage which together with those of the other three evangelists has inspired more great music, paintings, and sculptures than any other in the history of literature, in the West at least. And if we find ourselves reading the crucifixion narrative in public, then we must give it some welly. It is art, 
and as such it needs to be performed, not just read. Um, one of the books I wrote, had published, I think, back in 2003, was called The Book of Books, and it was a retelling of some of the finest stories and poetry in the Bible for uh, younger people. I had nine and ten-year-olds in my head. I'm told it works with adults, too. And for Christian Aid, back in November 2017, we had 16 schools and 18 churches reading it right through. Uh, in the cathedral, in the refectory in Chester Cathedral. It took us 12 and three-quarter hours, um, and each school and church that participated raised funds for Christian aid. We raised over 6,500 when it came to it. But the, uh, my wife, who um, used to be uh, uh, teach dyslexics at primary school level, said you could tell uh, the children um, from those schools where they've been taught to read it and those schools where they've been taught to perform it. It needs to be performed. There was a service of lament on a Sunday on Radio 4 near the end of last year. And I thought, at last, they're giving the prayer of lament an airing. I guess they won't be touching the prayer of complaint with a barge pole. At the prayer of lament and complaint, you see, is central to the prayer of the Old Testament. Um, but you can't have everything. Yet when it came to it, and to the biblical passages they read, they bottled it and drowned the passages in buckets of timid convention. For God's sake, I wanted to cry, do you not see what you're reading? Can you not touch the words? Do you feel so little? Surely not. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? You see, enjoying the Bible does not mean dancing up and down with joy or singing one praise song after another. The joy the Bible affords goes much deeper than that. It has to do with its ability to reach the very depths of the soul, to speak of the most profound human experience, above all, with its knack of taking us into the heart of the divine and there enabling us to encounter the love that never ends and has no terms and conditions of any kind. I do concede, however, that thus far we've been exploring what could be called dark texts. So let us move into the light. A few further examples, and then it will be playtime. I don't know whether you know the American Orthodox scholar David Bentley Hart. Uh, he's only just recently come to my notice. In 2017, he produced a remarkable translation of the New Testament, which he called the New Testament a translation. So it does what it says on the tin. And he reminds us in his very interesting introduction that almost all modern translations of the Bible that are used in public worship are produced by committees. The inevitable consequence of this, he says, 
is that many of the most important decisions are negotiated accommodations achieved by general agreement and favoring those solutions that prove the least offensive to everyone involved. Novel approaches to the text are generally the first to perish and only the tried and tested survive. And this can result in the exclusion not only of extravagantly conjectural readings, but often of the most straightforwardly literal as well. Their renderings become ineluctably mired in the anodyne blandness and imprecision of diplomatic accord. <laughs> with, all, with every word of that, I passionately agree. So the astonishing thir Exodus 32.11, instead of being translated, Moses soothed the face of God. Moses soothed the face of God, which is what the Hebrew says, is rendered, Moses besought the Lord. That's the King James. Or, but Moses implored the Lord. That's the NRSV. And all the daring, all the intimacy, all the power, all the poetry is drained from the text. Such bland translations cannot be defended. At least our versions are prepared to preserve the Hebrew a chapter later in 33.11 when it talks of the Lord speaking to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. But only the Jewish translators Robert Alter and Everett Fox both their translations are called the five books of Moses. But only Robert Alter and Everett Fox are prepared to tell it as it is when it comes to Numbers 12, verse 8, where God says of Moses, mouth to mouth do I speak with him. It's an astonishing way of talking. Then there is the case of the great prologue to John's Gospel. If we attend to his Greek in verse 14, as David Bentley Hart does, we hear this. And the word became flesh and pitched a tent among us. Pitched a tent. That is what the single Greek word John uses there means. It is perfectly plain. It's not a difficult word. It's an unusual word, but it's not a difficult word. It's perfectly plain. It means pitched a tent. And through it, John draws upon the rich tradition in the Hebrew scriptures of the tabernacle or tent of meeting. Jesus, so John is claiming here, is the new tent of meeting, Nazareth style, nothing fancy, no trump tower, nothing smelling of power or money or privilege, and all are welcome and all are invited to enter and to sit and eat so a Samaritan woman can take shelter from the burning midday sun and the contempt of her neighbors. In John's story, remember, she's at the village well where the women gather at the wrong time of day and on her own.
and there she can find dignity and honor, wisdom and belonging, and God. All that held by John in a single word, eskinosen. For God's sake, don't say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or lived among us, or made his dwelling among us. This is poetry, very great poetry. Don't kill it off. If you find yourself, if you are worship leaders and you, or readers, and you find yourself in public worship reading that passage, don't read what's in front of you. Say, pitched a tent, because that's what's there. Let us all take the opportunity this Lent to confess the sin of being bland. Finally, a brief look at one aspect of John's narrative technique. It has often been observed that he chooses to tell significant parts of his tale by dwelling on encounters between Jesus and a single person. Nicodemus in chapter 3, the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, the man born blind in chapter 9, and most significantly of all, Mary of Magdala in chapter 20. All four Gospels make plain it was the women disciples who first stumbled upon the resurrection but the others speak of a group of women there. Incidentally, one of the um, uh, sections of my last book, The Gospel Beyond the Gospels, um, which I haven't brought with me, was arguing that Jesus is the evidence of the Gospels, is that despite the fact that they're written, largely written out of the story, the evidence of all four Gospels is that it was the women who were the closest disciples of Jesus. Anyway, so they talk about the women first stumbling upon the resurrection, but the others speak of a group. John nods in the direction of that tradition when he has Mary of Magdala run back from the empty tomb and cry to the other disciples, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have put him. Yet for the moment of encounter with the risen Christ, as we well know, John has Mary on her own. The other woman or women who were with her the first time have not returned to the tomb. She has. And because her grief is sharper than that of Peter and the beloved disciple, because her devotion to Jesus is stronger, runs deeper than theirs, because she cannot tear herself away when they return home, she is alone when the risen Christ appears and when that one that word, her name, Mary, turns all grief to joy. When she tries to hold on to him thinking she has got her rabbi back. When finally she knows she is in the presence of God himself. I've seen the Lord, she will tell the others. And the full meaning of that will emerge when in the next, next chapter, Thomas meets the same risen Jesus and exclaims, my Lord and my God. 
John's having Mary alone with Christ in that scene immeasurably heightens its dramatic effect. I have no doubt in my mind that some of the women disciples did encounter Jesus after his death and that for them it was like meeting God. Indeed, as a Christian, I believe it was meeting God, only now he was marked with the scars of crucifixion. And I have no doubt, since she's there in all four Gospels, that Mary of Magdala was among those women, perhaps the one who was most deeply affected by the experience and most able to articulate its mystery. But I have no doubt at all that by putting Mary by herself on stage, on her own with the risen Christ, John has created what is the finest of the resurrection stories by a country mile. Let us not turn the Bible into a mere vehicle for the preaching of doctrine or spend all our time looking for the message when the evangelists do that with some of Jesus' parables, they invariably ruin them. Let us perform the text so we and others are drawn into its drama and its beauty and become changed. Finding the Bible as art, as great storytelling and poetry, gives us, whether Christians or Jews or whoever, gives us the freedom to enjoy it, and when needs must, take issue with it also. As I myself have discovered its daring and come to relish its diversity, it never speaks with one voice on any matter of any significance, or at least I haven't thought of one yet. So I have come to argue with it in good biblical fashion and call it out, if necessary. That will not do. That is not the God of whom I wish to speak, nor the God I know. That God with a small g, the God of the fall of Jericho, for example, or the violence, the God of the, the more violent passages in the book of Revelation, that God comes out of our fear and our cruelty. He is nowhere to be seen at Golgotha or in the garden of Mary's encounter. Truly enjoying the Bible means being honest with it and honest about it. As I fell in love with the Bible, so I began to play with it. And for many years, as first as a school chaplain, then at Salisbury Wells, and then at Chester Cathedral, I preached occasionally through storytelling or poetry where the story or poem was the sermon, and when it ended, so did I. And the one I'm going to read you now, um, I must have written for a Good Friday service, uh, and I think it must be one of the ones I wrote when I was at Salisbury. Uh, it's called The Other Women because all the Gospels talk about so-and-so being there, so-and-so being there at the cross, and there were, there were other women there too. Um, and I treat the crucifixion story with very great freedom, uh, and at the end, the resurrection story too, as well as the stories of three characters from my beloved Hebrew Scriptures, uh, characters which... 
the scriptures themselves do not do justice to and one who we admired in our misogyny. The other women. And with this, I will come to an end. There were other women at the cross beyond those of whom the gospel speak. They came unseen by all but Christ himself, and only he heard their words or felt them wash the blood from his feet with their tears. They were his last and most abiding companions. Eve came, mother of all that lives. That's how Genesis describes her. Her name was fit for a goddess. And she came to meet the Christ on Golgotha with all her grandest ceremony. Her hair streamed out behind her in the wind of the world's first making, and her eyes shone with the light of the first stars. Walking the hills of Galilee with Christ, she had found again her ancient freedom and her dignity. With him there had been much work to be done. She was the mother of all that lives, and there had been much death to defeat. But she'd no longer had to endure the toil that had always threatened to bend her body or break her spirits. With Christ she dis discovered her old courage also and her daring. There'd been no cause to hide anymore. She'd been able to face anything, and face it she had. And with Christ she'd grown wise. He had given her the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And in his hands it had brought not fear and shame as before, but delight and power and new wisdom. She'd turned into the queen she was always meant to be. And her merriment had spilled over the Sea of Galilee and made the fish leap. So she came to Golgotha holding the sun in her hand. Ropes of flowers wound round her tall neck and the jewels of the deep earth upon her fingers. But it was not as she expected. She'd come for the coronation of her king to cry, Amen to sing for him the love song of creation and lead him in the dance of Eden, but it was not as she expected. The sun in her hand went black. The jewels on her fingers lost their light and the flowers about her neck closed their petals. She had to change her song. It was still a love song, but not the one that had been sung at creation. It was the song she'd sung after the flood, when all the world had drowned in God's tears. She'd sung it then to console him. And so now she sung it again at the foot of the cross, and she laid the black sun there and took her garlands of flowers and put them about his neck and slipped her jewels on his twisted fingers and she kissed him and wept.
Sarah was there also. Isaac had never come home. He'd gone off one morning with his father and she'd never seen him again. Abraham had talked wild talk of a three-day journey of fire and a knife and the building of an altar and the binding of her son, of how he'd stopped and sacrificed a ram instead, and all she'd asked was where Isaac was. He'd not been able to tell her. So she'd left and gone hunting for him. She'd gone back to Ur, from which they'd come originally, but Isaac was not there. She'd gone down to Egypt, where once Abraham had so humiliated her, but they'd heard nothing of her son. Christ had first discovered her among some tombs above the Sea of Galilee, where she'd gone to see if Isaac's name was on any of the graves. Wild with grief, she'd called Christ all the names under the sun and beaten his chest with her fist, and he had waited till she was done and could accept his embrace. She'd kept him company ever since. So she came to Golgotha and waited till he died. And when they came to take his body down, she sat on the ground and asked them to lay his body in her lap. And so they did. And she bent her face to his and said over and over again, My son, my son, my son, my son. Three other women were there at the cross beyond those of whom the gospel speak. The third was Job's wife. Mara, she was called. She had happened to be on the edge of the crowd as Christ had entered Jerusalem. She'd watched the people as they'd carpeted his way with branches of palm. She'd listened to their coronation songs. She'd followed him to the temple and seen the mayhem he had caused. She'd listened at the foot of some steps leading to an upper room. She'd watched as he broke down in Gethsemane, as he was arrested with the kiss of a friend, as he was tried and tried again. And she'd heard his scream as the soldiers put him to the lash. She'd followed him all the way to that strange hump of cracked rock above a rubbish dump outside the city walls. And all that time she'd said nothing. She'd not seen those moments when Christ had looked at her. He knew who she was and why she was there. But she'd never looked him in the eye and she did not understand herself what she was doing. But when they nailed him to the woods and the cries of agony broke from his throat and the fighting for breath began and the hopeless clinging to life and its terrible pain, then she understood. She came out of the shadows where she'd been standing and she stood right in front of the cross and called up to Christ to gain his attention. How long? Will you go on clinging to your innocence? She shouted. Curse God and die. Curse God and die. There was silence. The onlookers stopped their mockery and waited. The thief who'd been shouting at Christ for so long was quiet. For a third time, Mara shouted, Curse God and die! 
Christ's body twisted and pulled at the nails. He seemed to be gathering all his strength for one last effort, and slowly he lifted his head. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why, why, why? His voice seemed to split heaven in two. A fearful darkness fell upon the place. The earth shuddered and broke apart and all those beneath the cross were thrown to the ground. All except Mara. She stood there stock still. She remembered the time when she and her husband Job had suffered so very terribly and she recalled how insufferable he'd been at first until the dam of his piety had burst and he had dared for the first time in his life look God in the eye and tell him what was in his heart. In the end, his God had come out of hiding and taken him by the hand and shown him all the secrets of the universe. And that, of course, had changed him quite. But Mara had not received the vision herself. There had been no grand tour for her. She would not heard God's exquisite commentary. For her, there had been no end, no conclusion, only a loneliness and a bewilderment which all Job's new love had not been able to penetrate. And there she was on Golgotha, and once again she cried those terrible words, curse God and die, only this time she'd not been rebuked. This time the man had had no dam of frightened piety to break. This time she'd been listened to, her words had been heeded. Yet that was not why she was weeping. She was weeping because she knew what Christ's words meant. She'd heard her husband shouting at God, beating at God's door with his own terrifying words, and she'd not known till then that he had loved God so much, nor put so much trust in his mercy. Now on Golgotha, when she heard Christ's bitterness burst from his body, she recognized it as once, at once as the cry of the lover to the beloved. She knew the quaking earth was deceived, for there was no cause for fear. Christ had looked God in the eye and shown him his heart. All was revealed. For the first time, she herself saw the love at the very heart of God. Her husband had told her of it, told her, of what he had seen and heard, but she had only heard by the hearing of the ear. She'd not seen, she'd not known for herself, not till that moment when Christ raised his head and bellowed out his pain. And she stepped forward and laid her head on his feet. And the last thing he knew before he died was her tears mingling with his blood. He wanted to give her a new name, for Mara, bitterness, no longer spoke of her. But he could not find the breath. It died on his lips. Yet it would not be long before he would meet her again, walking in his garden in the cool of the new day. 
And then he would call her Mary. And she would find resurrection. Resurrection. 